You may be seated. We're continuing in our series from the book of Acts today, and we are in the same passage we were in last week, Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40. So turn there if you would. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. We are going to camp out on this passage one more week. So if you would turn there, we will um, have the words on the screen for you as well in the version that I'm reading. But if you need a Bible this morning, then just raise your hand and we'll get you one. All right, there's one hand. All right. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. If you recall, this is a passage um, where Philip, after the... Tremendous work that God's done in Samaria is now led by the Holy Spirit into a new evangelistic experience. So we'll start in verse 26 of chapter 8. The Word of God says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the, of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Asotus. And as he passed through preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our lives. God, I pray that um, you would just guide Deemer as he brings the word this morning. Father, we know that it's nothing special about um, either Deemer or I or anyone who stands up here and preaches the word, what's special is your word. What's powerful is your word. What never comes back void is your word. So I pray, Lord, that the word of God, your very word spoken out by you, inspired by you, written here by Luke and the other passages that Deemer is going to look at today, Father, I pray that your word would penetrate our heart. Any hardness that might be there, I pray, Lord, that you'd break through. And God, we ask that you would help us today, Lord, to receive your word with open hearts, open ears, open eyes. And Lord, we wouldn't leave the same as when we came. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
One of the, uh, the challenges of, of preachers is always getting done on time, but I was very encouraged to look at the clock and see that it's actually 9.03, so I have uh, plenty of time to, uh, to preach to you this morning. <laughs> Just kidding, I know what time it really is. Um, one, one of my professors in seminary uh, told a story once uh, about a lady in a church that he had served in. Um, let's just call this lady Mrs. Smith, uh, fake name, real lady. And Mrs. Smith was someone who was always at the church. Whenever the doors were open, she would be there. didn't matter what was going on. If there were special events, she was there. If there were services, she was there. She was there on Sunday morning. She was there on Wednesday night. She was there at all the potlucks. Every time the church had something going on, she was there, and she was always participating. She was totally plugged in, and, uh, and she was always around. Yet, to my, my professor's amazement, uh, he noticed one day that Mrs. Smith was not on the church membership role. And that totally blew him away because, I mean, she's here for everything. She's here all the time. She's been here for years. And, uh, and he asked the, the church secretary, he said, well, there, there must be some kind of mistake because Mrs. Smith is not on the church role as an official church member. And the secretary said, well, that's right. Uh, she, it's because she's never been baptized. And my professor was just amazed. Never been baptized. Why hasn't she been baptized? And the secretary explained to him. She, she said, well, uh, Mrs. Smith has this big bouffant hairdo. And she spends all day Friday at the beauty shop getting her hair just right and fixed and blue rinsed and ready to go. And, 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 and she's afraid that if she ever gets baptized, that big bouffant hairdo going under the water is just going to mess her, mess her hair up. Her makeup's going to be running down, and she's going to look undignified. She's going to look humiliated. She's going to be absolutely humiliated uh, during the baptism experience. Therefore, she has never been baptized. Now, my question to you is, what would you say to Mrs. Smith? If, if, if you knew her, how would you deal with that situation? How would you approach that situation? Would you say anything to her at all? Maybe baptism is just kind of an optional thing, and if we feel like doing it, we, we should do it. But if somebody has reasons for not doing it, even if they're, you know, they, they've committed their lives to Christ, then, then maybe we should just leave that up to them. Well, we're going to be talking about baptism this morning, and hopefully as we talk through this, uh, you will get some help in figuring out how to deal with somebody like Mrs. Smith, and maybe even how to view baptism in your own life, uh, and, and, and I hope that what we talk about over the next few minutes will help to maybe crystallize some things about baptism. We've been preaching through the book of Acts, and, uh, and, and Steve and I thought that it would be fitting to take a Sunday to talk a little bit about baptism already in the book of Acts. We've seen several baptisms. We've seen in Acts 2, uh, Peter preaching his great sermon, thousands of people getting saved, and immediately all of these people upon receipt of the gospel, upon believing in the gospel, they get baptized. We also saw this a few weeks ago when, uh, when we looked at the story uh, of the gospel going into Samaria. You had Philip going into Samaria and the Samaritans responding to the gospel and immediately they're getting baptized in response to that. And then last week, Steve actually preached on the text that we just read just moments ago where you had the, the Ethiopian eunuch who received the gospel, he believed the gospel, and immediately he was baptized. And we will see baptism again in Acts over and over again. This is not the last time that we'll see it. And we're going to see it throughout the rest of the New Testament scriptures as well. And, uh, and so before we go any further in Acts, we're going to pause today and examine baptism. And I, and I really just have 
um, uh, four points this morning, divided up into two broad categories. One of the categories that we're going to talk about is what baptism is not, and then we're going to talk about what baptism is. As far as what baptism is not, the two main things we're going to talk about is baptism is not for salvation, and baptism is not for infants. Okay, We're going to talk about a couple of popular misuses of baptism today. And then in regards to what baptism is, we're going to talk, we're going to, we're going to talk about how baptism is humiliating. And we're also going to talk about how baptism is glorifying. So that's kind of, let's look at where we're going this morning. But let's look at the first one. Baptism is not for salvation. One of the misuses of baptism comes from a doctrine that theologians call baptismal regeneration. This is a belief that the waters of baptism, as the water is coming on you, that it actually has some sort of salvific effect. The waters of baptism are actually saving you. And, and, and this is common amongst various groups today, including uh, the Roman Catholic Church. I was actually just the other day reading the Catholic Catechism online, and it actually, uses, it actually says the phrase, baptism is necessary for salvation. And there are other groups that, that teach this as well. Yet, the waters of baptism, as we look in Scripture are not supernatural, they're not magical. The water in and of itself does not have the power to save anyone. How do the scriptures say that we are saved? Well, the classic text, of course, is Paul in Ephesians 2, who says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The text does not say, for by grace you have been saved through faith and baptism, not a result of works. That wouldn't make any sense because baptism is a work. The works that Paul is thinking of is all the kinds of religious works and all the kinds of good deeds that would include baptism. And the very point of Paul's message here in Ephesians 2 is that no outward religious act that you can do can achieve your salvation. And one of the applications of that, Paul says, is so that no man can boast, so that no man can brag. Well, I did these religious deeds. Well, I did those religious deeds. Well, I give money to the poor. Well, I served the church. Well, I was baptized. So these things count towards my salvation. But Paul says, with salvation, no one can brag about anything because salvation is a gift from God. A gift is something that is given to you. It is not something that is earned by your own power or your own efforts or your own deeds. Now, there's a couple of texts that we need to look at uh, in regards to baptismal regeneration. There are a couple of texts that some people use to say that actually these parts of the Bible actually do say that baptism has a salvific effect. And one of those texts is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Why don't you turn there with me? Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to be hitting several scriptures this morning. This is going to be more of a topical message this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Now, in this scripture, it's the day of Pentecost. Peter has just preached his first sermon about Jesus, and the crowd is convicted by Peter's sermon. And they ask Peter, what, what shall we do? in response to this gospel message that you've preached. And look at what it says in verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized. Why? Peter says, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, on the surface, that seems problematic for those of us who believe that baptism doesn't save you. Peter just said, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Not only that, but Peter uh, says something else that on the surface is even more troubling than, than what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Something that seems to give 100% support to those groups that teach salvation by baptism. And it's found in per, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. In 1 Peter 3.21, Peter actually says, baptism now saves you. You can look at it yourself. He says that. Baptism now saves you. Now, how do we deal with that? Paul says you are saved by grace through faith alone. Text after text after text after text in the Bible testifies that no good deeds, no religious acts can save us. That salvation is God's gracious gift. And then Peter says in one place, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then in another place he says, baptism now saves you. What's up with that? Well, let's take a closer look at 1 Peter 3.21. Let's actually see what the whole verse says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, we'll take a look at what Peter says baptism corresponds to in just a few minutes. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, I hope you caught that. What is Peter saying? Is Peter saying that the mere act of being baptized, the act of going through these waters, is that what's saving you? Peter's not saying that. As a matter of fact, Peter is saying the exact opposite. This verse actually is the death blow to the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. What he is saying is, baptism now saves you. you when he says baptism now saves you, you have to keep reading to see how baptism saves you. Peter says baptism saves you not as a result, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, Peter is saying that getting wet does absolutely nothing for you. That does not save you. The waters are not magical. The waters are not mystical. Now, there is something that is saving you in the act of being baptized, but it is not water. What is it? What is happening when someone is being baptized? What is baptism doing? What is it saying? Well, Peter tells you. Baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not the water. It is not the removing of dirt from the body that is saving you. Peter is saying what is saving you in the baptismal waters is not the water. It is the appeal to God for a good conscience. It is a calling out to God. It is a reaching out to God. And this, of course, is done by faith. Peter here is linking baptism with faith. Peter is not contradicting Paul. Peter is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. It is the faith that is saving you. Peter says that, says that um, 
uh, is linking baptism with faith, and, 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 and this is exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, that you are saved by faith. The baptism is an outward expression of the saving faith that is present when the person is being baptized. Peter sees faith and baptism as hand in hand. So, this is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 2.38. Peter is saying, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Another way of saying that would be, be baptized to be saved. And then later on in 1 Peter, he gives us further insight into what he was thinking in Acts chapter 2.38, when he tells us that getting wet actually doesn't save you. What is saving you is an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's what baptism is. Peter doesn't see baptism as you getting into this mystical water, and that's saving you. Rather, Peter sees the point of baptism as an outward expression of an inward Hearts cry to God, asking for salvation. Peter, in his Acts 2 sermon, a few verses before verse 38, just quoted the, had just quoted the prophet Joel, saying, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then the people ask Peter, What shall we do? And what does Peter tell them they should do? He tells them to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You say, Deemer, that's not what Peter said. Peter said, repent and be baptized. And what I'm trying to tell you is that that means exactly the same thing. Peter sees baptism as an act of calling on the Lord, putting your faith in the Lord, trusting in the Lord, appealing to the Lord for a good conscience. This is exactly why in the early church, people were baptized practically the same moment that they were converted. Baptism and conversion, baptism and salvation in the early church were almost simultaneous. The two went hand in hand. People believed in Christ, and in Acts you see people being baptized immediately. Uh, there, there was this close linkage between the initial faith cry of a repentant sinner and his baptism. Baptism was seen as the visible expression of that faith cry. It would have been virtually unheard of in the early church for someone to be a believer for one year, for five years, for ten years, and not to have received baptism. That would have been completely foreign to the believers in the, in the early church. And today, often believers see baptism as just kind of an optional add-on to the Christian life. And people say, well, baptism, that's, that's good. Maybe that's something that I should get around to one day. Well, maybe I'll, I'll wait for the other people in my family to get saved, and then I'll go ahead and be baptized. Well, we'll get baptized when it's most convenient for us. Maybe we'll just pencil that in our calendar someday when we can, when we can get around to it. But in the early church, there was a sense of urgency in regards to baptism. When you believed, it was expected of you that you would get baptized right away. But again, the waters of baptism in and of themselves are not saving you. As a matter of fact, you can be saved and never be baptized. Think of the thief on the cross who places his trust in Jesus as he's hanging there. And, and, and the thief responds to Jesus in faith. And what does Jesus say to the thief? Jesus does not say, well, you know, that's good that you have faith in me, but since you can't be baptized hanging up here, tough luck. Sorry about that. I can't do anything for you. No, Jesus says, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Jesus responds to the thief's faith cry and saves him. So when we're urging our friend Mrs. Smith with the big bouffant hairdo to get baptized, 
we are not saying, Mrs. Smith, turn or burn. That's not what we're saying to Mrs. Smith. We're not saying either get your hair wet now or it's going to be burned up in hell. That's not what we're saying when we are trying to give her reasons of why she should be baptized. We don't believe the waters of baptism are significant for that reason, but we do believe Mrs. Smith should be baptized, and I'll explain why in a moment. The fact that Peter describes baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience is one of the reasons why we don't baptize babies in our congregation. And, and this is my, my second point. First one, baptism is not for salvation. Second one, baptism is not for babies. Babies cannot make an appeal to God for a good conscience. They cannot call on the name of the Lord to be saved. They cannot repent and be baptized. They cannot go through an outward practice to describe an inward faith because infants don't have faith. Infant baptism, also called uh, pedo-baptism, is another misuse of baptism. And the type of infant baptism that I'm talking about now is not the practice of baptizing babies to save them. I'm talking about the I'm talking about the practice of baptizing babies as a means of bringing them into the New Covenant community, or that's just another name for the church. Now, our Presbyterian friends and many others from the Reformed theological tradition have a different take on baptism than we Baptists do. And it's an honest disagreement between friends, but it is a significant disagreement. Our Presbyterian friends do not believe that baptism saves babies from hell, but they do think that the babies of believers should be baptized. And the reason why is because they believe that baptism in the New Testament functions like circumcision in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament covenant community, known also as the Jews, the nation of Israel. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Every male Jewish baby boy was circumcised just days after his birth. This marked him out as a member of that Old Testament covenant community. Circumcision began with Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, and all the physical sons of Abraham, by that I mean all the physical descendants of Abraham, from generation to generation, were to receive the mark of circumcision as a baby. This baby may grow up and receive the Lord and be saved, or he may grow up and be an idol worshiper and a covenant breaker. But regardless, he was considered a member of the old covenant community, the nation of Israel, a son of Abraham, a, a part of this special community that we see in the Old Testament, blessed by God, and God worked through this nation in a unique way. And even unbelievers in the covenant community would have had received some benefits by virtue of their connection to this corporate entity known as Israel. Therefore, many of our friends in the reform camp, oh, and we're in that reform camp, by the way. Uh, theologically, we hold to much of the teachings of the reform tradition, just not this one, infant baptism. But many of our other reform friends say that baptism functions in the same way. The old covenant community was the nation of Israel, and the new covenant community is the church. And there was an outward physical sign reflecting membership in the old covenant community, namely circumcision, and this was to be done of babies born of Jewish parents. In the same way, they would argue, there is an outward 
physical sign reflecting membership in the new covenant community, namely baptism, and just as circumcision was given to the infants of Jewish parents, so baptism is given to the infants of Christian parents. That's the argument in a nutshell. And yet this too is a serious misuse of baptism. As has already been mentioned, the New Testament clearly connects baptism with repentance in faith. And not just in the scriptures that I cited earlier, but in many, many more texts. It's all over the place. And infants are incapable of repentance and faith, so it is not proper to baptize them. But beyond that, there are other problems with Reformed paedobaptism. Our Reformed paedobaptist friends are absolutely correct when they say that there is a correspondence between baptism and circumcision. They are absolutely right when they say that just as circumcision was to be given to the members of the old covenant community, so baptism is to be given to the members of the new covenant community, the church. They are right when they say baptism is a sign of the new covenant. That's not the problem with Reformed paedobaptism. The problem with Reformed paedobaptism is that they are missing a dramatic shift between the old covenant and the new covenant. As we come to the New Testament... There is an enormous shift, and God begins to form a new covenant community. And this new covenant is not like the old covenant. The prophet Jeremiah, in chapters 31 and 32 of his book, talk about the coming new covenant. And the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, is unbreakable. You won't have members of the new covenant community worshiping idols, becoming apostates, and forsaking the Lord like you did during the old covenant. You don't have a community where some of the members are saved and most of them are not, like Israel was right before the exile. Rather, Jeremiah describes a community where everyone is saved. Jeremiah describes a people whom God is going to work in their hearts to keep their hearts from turning away from the Lord. Jeremiah describes a people whom God remembers their sins no more and a people who has an intimate, personal relationship with God. Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant community, also known as the church. And there are significant differences between the old covenant community and the new covenant community. One of the most significant differences has to do with how one actually entered the old covenant community, Israel, and how one enters today the new covenant community, being the church. The main way that one entered the old covenant community was how? Let me see. This is like a, a deep theological message today, and so I know it can be easy to zone out. How does one enter the old covenant community in Israel? Birthright. Thank you. You are born into the old covenant community. You have Jewish parents. That's the main way. Now, there were occasionally Gentile proselytes who would want to become Jews and that they would undergo the circumcision rite as well. But the main way that you had to enter into the old covenant community was through birth. They were members by virtue of birth. All the physical descendants of Abraham, the physical sons of Abraham, were members of the Old Covenant community. But now, as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, there is a significant shift. It is true that the New Testament still identifies the sons of Abraham as members of the covenant community. The sons, uh, the, 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 the sons of Abraham were members of the Old Covenant community, and the sons of Abraham 
are the members of the new covenant community. However, the difference is this. The sons of Abraham in the New Testament are defined as whom? That's the important question. Who are the sons of Abraham in the New Testament? It is not those who are physically descended from Abraham. This is where we see the major shift now between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Paul, in this Galatians 3, which is such a beautiful chapter, you can turn there. Galatians chapter 3, there's so much good truth in there. But in Galatians 3, 7, Paul declares, Know know then that that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? You are. If you're in Christ, even if you don't have a drop of Jewish blood in your body. If you are of the faith, if you are in Christ, you are counted as a son of Abraham. Oh, and ladies, this includes you too, even though Paul's not using the word daughters. This this includes everybody. The point is that the members of the old covenant community were sons of Abraham physically. Physically. They were part of a physical geopolitical entity of Israel, and they were circumcised. The members of the church, on the other hand, the members of the new covenant community, are also sons of Abraham. They are sons spiritually. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham, the kind of sonship that matters the most. This is a sonship that is not based on your DNA. It's not based on who your daddy is. Or who your mommy is. It's based on whether or not you are in Christ. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Infants can't have faith. Infants have not placed their trust in Christ. Infants have not believed in Christ. Again, Paul emphasizes faith. Not physical birth to Christian parents as being the key that unlocks the door to the new covenant community. Uh, while you're in Galatians 3, look at, uh, we're going to read 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, not through being an infant with Christian parents. And then look, look at what Paul says right after that. Well, let me back up again to 26 so you can get, hear the full force of 26 and 27 together. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Ah, look at this. We come full circle to baptism once again. And once again, we see a linkage between faith and baptism. Just like Peter links faith and baptism. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That word for there in the text is very important. The explanation with the word for only makes sense if baptism is understood as an acting out of faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Or to turn it around, you could turn around what Paul's saying and you could say it this way. Since you were baptized into Christ, therefore we know that in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Why? Because that is what baptism means. You were baptized into Christ by faith. Baptism without faith is inconceivable 
to Paul. And this is why we as a church only baptize believers. We don't baptize someone who comes to us and says, well, I'm not really sure about this this Christ stuff, but man, I really like your church, and I like the kids' songs and stuff like that, and I want to join your fellowship, and and so I'm going to go ahead and be baptized. It it would be inappropriate to baptize and administer the sign of the new covenant, baptism, to someone who is not a part of the new covenant community. It would be misleading to do so. The, the baptism would say something about that person that is not true. That person is not a son of Abraham because he doesn't have faith in Christ yet. And because he's not a son of Abraham, and, and since he's not a son of Abraham, he is not a member of the new covenant community. And the same is true for an infant. He's not counted as a son of Abraham just because he's your son, just because his parents are Christians. He's not yet counted as a child of God. Who are counted as the children of God? The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This does not mean we don't love your baby. We love your babies. We love babies at Harbin's Church. We want to develop a culture at this church that will help your child grow and learn about the Lord Jesus and hopefully receive him one day so that he too or she too can be counted as a son of Abraham and a member of the New Covenant community. And Paul uses this word sons in Galatians not because he's sexist. Why doesn't he say sons and daughters? He's not doing that because he's sexist. Paul uses the word sons to signify that all who are in Christ, who are members of this new covenant community, are counted as sons. It was the sons in the ancient world who received the inheritance. That means, ladies, when you are in Christ, you are just as much of an heir to the covenant promises of God as the men are. And that's good news. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Baptism is reserved for Abraham's offspring, for the heirs, for you, if you put on Christ. All right, so now let's turn from the negative to the positive. We've talked about what baptism is not. Baptism is not for salvation. Baptism is not for babies. What is baptism? Well, first of all, baptism is humiliating. There is an element of humiliation in baptism for several reasons. One of the reasons is that, yes, it's a little awkward to go under the water and to be pulled back out gulping and sputtering and stumbling and all of that. And if you have that bouffant hairdo, it's not going to be pretty when you come back out of the water. There's going to be an element of of looking undignified, of, of, of looking somewhat humiliated. But it's also, baptism is also humbling because of what baptism is actually saying. Baptism is not just an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is not just symbolic of spiritual cleansing and the washing away of sins. Baptism is a sign of judgment. Often in the Bible, we see water used in the context of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 10, 
Paul speaks of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. He speaks of that as a baptism. They were brought safely through the waters of judgment to the other side, but the Egyptians were drowned. We see the floodwaters in Genesis destroying sinful humanity. But, but look at what Peter says about the flood incident in 1 Peter 3. We were in 1 Peter 3 a moment ago. Let's go back to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 20. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we already looked earlier at how Peter describes baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience, as a crying out to God, as a calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. But what else does he say about baptism in this passage? Look at it. He says that baptism corresponds to something. Baptism corresponds to Noah and the flood and the ark and being saved from judgment. In Genesis, God floods the world in judgment of the sins uh, because of the sins of humanity. But Noah and his family are brought through the waters of judgment and they come out safely on the other side. When someone is being baptized, they are recognizing that there is a sea of God's judgment threatening to drown them. They are recognizing that they deserve death. They are in humility agreeing with God that they deserve destruction. And that person is agreeing with God that they are guilty. And, and the church, when the church is baptizing this person, they're announcing that too. They're agreeing with you. When we baptize someone, we are saying, yes, we agree with you. We agree with God that you are guilty. We agree that you deserve death. For Mrs. Smith, who's worried that baptism looks humiliating, it does look humiliating. It's supposed to look humiliating. It's very humbling. It's humbling because of how you look. It's humbling because baptism reminds us that we deserve judgment. It's humbling because when you are put under the waters of baptism, you are at the mercy of someone else to bring you up out again. But if you are concerned about baptism because it's humiliating, realize that Jesus himself was baptized, which is absolutely shocking. One more place that I'll take you is Matthew 3. When you read Matthew 3, <clears throat> John the Baptist is preaching judgment. He is urging people to repent, and people are streaming out to John to be baptized. People are coming out to him saying, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am worthy of death. Yes, I need mercy from God and I am appealing to God to save me. And Jesus comes along to be baptized also. And then look at verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus comes for baptism, and John is absolutely stunned. I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. People are coming, they're coming to baptism confessing that they are sinners. Jesus is not a sinner. 
people are receiving a baptism of repentance. Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything. People are admitting that they deserve death and judgment. Jesus doesn't deserve death and judgment, but he's going to get it. Jesus will die, and Jesus will be judged anyway for the sins of the world, for your sins and mine. Jesus is coming to the baptismal waters not because he is a repentant sinner. He's coming to be baptized as one who is identifying with the ones he came to save. He is doing this to identify with you. And how does he identify with his people? By receiving God's death penalty. By undergoing the judgment of God on the cross. By dying by going down into burial, down into the grave. Jesus later on speaks of his coming judgment. He calls it a baptism. He says, I have a baptism that I must undergo. And, and here in this baptism in John 3, Jesus humbles himself. He puts himself in this humiliating situation by identifying with you, a sinner who deserves to be drowned. And when he is put under the waters, it is a foreshadowing that in just a few years, the waters of God's judgment, the waters of God's wrath will be poured out on him as he is hanging naked and humiliated on a cross for you. Going back to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. If he was reading Isaiah 53, he would have read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on this man, the iniquity or the sins of us all. And just as Jesus humbles himself by, uh, by identifying himself with us in baptism, just as he identifies with us in going through the humiliation of the cross, so now we, as we believe in Jesus, are saying we identify with that humiliation that Jesus went through. We want the things that Jesus went through to count as ours. And, and, and to put off that baptism, to put off that humiliation to a day maybe sometime in the future when I can fit it into my calendar, uh, or, or to put it off because it's embarrassing, because it's humiliating, because it's inconvenient, is ignoring the connection and the unity that you have with Christ. And you want to declare your connection to Christ. You should want to declare your unity to Christ because the humiliation of Christ is not the end of the story. And that leads to my fourth point. Baptism is glorifying. After the humiliation of the cross, after Jesus tastes death through the judgment of God, Jesus doesn't stay buried. He doesn't stay in the grave. He rises up out of the grave to a newness of, of life. And when Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters and breaks through the surface, it is a foreshadowing of his victory over the grave. And after his humiliation, there is glorification and exaltation. There is exaltation 
at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3? What happens at his baptism? What happens as he comes up out of the water? The voice of the Father booms from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, with him who I am well pleased. And what is God doing here? God is showing us in advance through the baptism of Jesus, what he is going to do with Jesus when he raises him up out of the grave and declares him to be the Son of God with power. God is showing us in the baptism of Jesus that he is accepting Jesus, and God is showing us in advance of his acceptance of Jesus demonstrated by Jesus' resurrection of the dead, from the dead. God will pour out his wrath upon Jesus, but God will not forsake Jesus forever. And there is exaltation and glory after his resurrection. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a way for you to escape the floodwaters of God's wrath. The good news is that even though you deserve death for your sins, you can be saved. And how are you saved? Through faith. And that faith unites you with Jesus Christ. And when you are united with Christ, what is true of Christ is true of you. When you are united to Christ through faith, you don't have to face judgment in hell. You already experienced the judgment of God because Christ experienced it on the cross, and you are in Christ. You don't have to fear the grave. You already went down into the grave with Christ. You don't have to fear death because as Christ was raised from the dead to newness of life, so shall you be as well. And this is exactly what baptism graphically illustrates. Death, burial, resurrection. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 3. Do you, know that all, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. That baptism depicts graphically that unity with Christ. And it's interesting in Romans 6, Paul assumes here that baptized people are saved people. Baptized people are people who have already died with Christ because of their union with Christ by faith, which is one more reason we as a church will only baptize believers. To baptize someone who has not died with Christ, to baptize someone who has not been buried with Christ, to baptize someone who has not yet walked in newness of life, to baptize someone who will not be united with him in resurrection is to make a declaration, is to make an announcement of something that is not true of that person. That baptism would be a lie and a waste of water. But if those things are true of you, if you have received the Lord Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, and you have not yet been baptized, it's time to do it. I don't care what kind of hair you have. And none of you in here have big hair. You don't have to worry about that. But it is time for you to, to, to go forward with baptism and to not put it off any longer. To deny being baptized is to refuse to proclaim the gospel. That's what's at stake here. And it is time for you to make a gospel announcement. 
It is time for us as a church to come alongside you and say that, that we agree that you deserve death. We agree that you deserve judgment. But we also agree that because of your faith in Christ, you've already been baptized into his death. You've already been buried. And, and, and you are now walking in newness of life and you have a resurrection to look forward to in the age to come. We agree with that and we announce that before the congregation and before all peoples. It is time for you to receive the sign of the new covenant. If you are in Christ, you are counted as a son of Abraham, as an heir to all the promises of God, which includes life, forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, resurrection from the dead, a life of joy now, a home in heaven after you die, and the world as your inheritance. Now maybe, and I'm almost done, there are some here that are not in Christ. For you, the waters of God's judgment threaten to capsize you and drown you. But the message of baptism is a message to you. It's a message of hope. You don't have to perish in the flood. Through Christ, you can be brought safely through God's judgment to the other side. Just as Noah and those in the ark with him pass safely through the waters of God's judgment. That can happen to you too. All you have to do is agree with God that you are a sinner, receive Jesus Christ, and put your trust in him. And what does that look like, by the way? That looks like repentance. That looks like having a willingness to turn from your sins, to turn from the things in your life that are wrong, and to have a willingness to live your life in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you not call on him today? Appeal to him today for a good conscience. Ask him to save you. He's not willing that any should perish, and that includes you. So why die when you can find life today? Let's pray together. Father God, the message of baptism is a message, yes, of judgment and of death, but there is so much hope wrapped up into what baptism says. Baptism says that we can escape death. We can escape judgment. We can escape an eternity in hell. We can be united with Christ. We can receive life. We can receive resurrection. We can receive a grand inheritance as a son of Abraham. And Father, I pray for any believers here this morning who have not yet received baptism, who have not yet made that gospel announcement. Lord God, I pray that you would convict their heart and speak to them and tell them now is the time. And God, I pray for those in this room who have not yet received Christ as Lord and Savior. There may be some in here who maybe have gotten the cart before the horse. They got baptized, but they never actually received Christ as Savior. Today is the day to bend the knee. Today is the day to receive God. For all who receive him have the right to become children of God. God, I pray that this would be the day of salvation for anyone in this room who needs salvation. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to 